Um, I've been saying from the beginning that um, not all works of literature, but really great works of literature have a prophetic quality. So in some interesting way, and remember, lots of writers write for money, sadly. My, my own experience with literature is when writers do that, they're not always the most trustworthy or the best writers. The writers that we've been reading are, are, are I would call them friends of the Holy Spirit. They're on this side of prophecy. What they're doing is freely given. It, it's so clear, Faulkner didn't write for money um, because he didn't get enough for what he did. Um, he loved it, he did it. There was some kind of a call in what he did or he couldn't have done it. He, he lays bare a modern world for us um, and he does it freely. So the great works of art stand on this side of prophecy. They're helping us to see more clearly those things we don't see very well. and. To, to show us those things that so often we don't want to see. Um, so, where was I going? <laughs> help. You're a lot of help. Still point. Oh, thank you, Bev. Bless your soul. <clears throat> see, I was listening. I know. I'm going to leave my wife and move in with you. <laughs> I know you don't want me. I know you don't want me. <laughs> Remember the still point that every work of the dance, the vase, the stairs. Remember all those images that, <laughs> bless your soul. Um, God, somebody help me. Please. Um, it's too late. <laughs> I hope you're not going to let that go. Um, so that image has been central to every, that. The, one of the beauties of the quartets is that he's able to do that everywhere. It's almost like a scientist, but he's going on beyond science because he's making demonstrations in areas where sciences won't, and they're all unified in a poem. In uh, East Coker, he gave a hint of it in the season. When we get to Little Gidding, the last one, I, I think it's going to, I think what he does in um, East Coker goes to a greater depth and he does something at the very end with the sea, what he calls midwinter spring, that to me is one of the most stunning things you've ever done. Um, so I'm looking forward to getting to that. But anyway, that's still point, that point of intersection. And, what it, and you know what it means. It means the Logos, the incarnate God, is present everywhere in creation. Do we see him? I'd say most of the time not. But it's important for us to know it because it's the center of our belief. So, a whole world of reason opens up to us that's in accord with our faith. It should help us go out to the world with a better sense of its disorders and a hidden order behind it all in whatever we do. So, so with that in mind, I mean, I'll, I'll just read the opening section of um, Dry Salvages um, and make no comments. I'll just leave it and then we'll, we'll, we'll work through it, read through it. Um, um, for the next four or five weeks. Okay. <coughs> Remember, um, East Coker had to do with um, cyclical repetitions. 
So he's picking up the, the theme that he announced in the opening of Burt Norton where he said, um, remember he was talking about all time, and if all time is eternally present, then all time is unredeemable. Time present, time past are both perhaps present. There's an implied um, cyclical character to everything just in those openings. Things come, they, you know, they go away. If something doesn't come from outside of time, inside of time, time can't be redeemed. Something has to come from outside. Enter time. That's what Christ did. Um, so in Drasylvages, he he's dealing with um, the sick, or in sorry, in little um, East Coker, he was dealing with the cyclical character of things. Um, and here, it will be implied again. He, that will be central to everything he says. But it's but the governing motif of dry savages is the sea and water. So air, earth, fire, and water, they're all they're treating each one individually, separately. Here, the image will be the sea. Um, and remember, the very nature of the sea is formless. It, um, it's powerful. It, we, those of you who did the Odyssey, or even the Divine Comedy, because one of Dante's um, major images at the, at the beginning of the Perdiso was a ship setting out for sea, and he said it's too dangerous because the sea for him was an image of grace. If you don't take care when you face that in nature, you're going to be in trouble. So Elliot's picking up that sea imagery here, and it will run through the whole of this quartet. Remember, there's five sections in each one of them. Each one is a variation on a theme. Okay, so the theme is announced in the beginning. <coughs> the Dry Savages. I do not know much about gods, but I think that the river is a strong brown god, sullen, untamed, and intractable. Sorry, shouldn't have done I'm going to start over a minute. I don't remember if you guys remember this. Um, the sea has always been an image of grace. <coughs> Remember, the, the gods are at sea, and Odysseus has to go to sea in order to get home. He has to learn to face things in flux that are constantly changing, but that have a god behind them, something that's not unchanging. And if that isn't clear, just remember that. Whatever else the sea is, because it's formless, it's still the sea. It's one thing. So... Um, Odysseus had to learn to deal with all the archetypes that were made, that, that he had to face at sea. In Blake's poem called London, we did that together, he talked about the, the, the Thames River and looked at it as, a, as being overlaid by a grid because the rationalism that's introduced in the 17th century colors everything, it affects everything. It's, it's as if the mechanical reason and the science has, has so taken possession of our mind that we overlay everything with it to, to, the, to the destruction, to the, to the harm of those things. We become too rationalistic, too structured. <clears throat> so he gave, he gave us that image of the, of the Thames um, chartered, the chartered Thames, because it had been turned into a thing to promote commerce and business. And we're back in the Snopes world and making money in the modern mind. 
So Eliot knows all those things, just as, to refresh your mind, okay, that those images of a, of a force in nature that man has attempted to dominate for generally economic interest, for our own uses, whatever it is. <coughs> and remember, in the, in the Odyssey, <coughs> sorry, we went through this. When Odysseus was given conveyance home, it was by the Phaeacians, and um, Odysseus described, Homer describes the Phaeacians as these people who move across the sea as if their mind imposes itself on matter. They just, they think it and it happens. And I, for those of you who are with me, you remember, that's an image of techne, of technology, of making, that we, we use these instruments with the presumption that we can master nature. So the ships go across sea without fear and as if they can master nature. They think it and it happens. To me, that, that's a prototype of technology, our world. I'm just stunned what Homer knew, just stunned. You remember what happens when he finally gets home. The ship is turned into a mountain. Because to go across the sea, presuming on the gods, that you don't have to be afraid of anything, to, to think that you can master nature, is to offend the gods, that, that you're superior to the gods. And so, because you, you know from Christianity, God created nature, he's there, he's present in it. Dante says the best art is always a, an imitation of nature, because if you imitate that well, you're revealing God in some way. So there's always a danger in our efforts to master something, in our pride, um, the way we abuse it, all the, all the concerns about the economy and the environment in our modern age from the, you know, from the Pope on everywhere. It's not, it's not an accident. We are well past the point of seeing the consequences of that mindset to master nature. We're in the midst of it, so <coughs> sorry, keep that in mind here. The dry salvages. I do not know much about gods, but I think that the river is a strong brown god, sullen, untamed, and intractable. Patient to some degree, at first recognized as a frontier, useful, untrustworthy, as a conveyor of commerce, then only a problem confronting the builder of bridges. The problem once solved, the brown god is almost forgotten by the dwellers in cities, ever, however, implacable, keeping his seasons and rages, destroyer, reminder of what men choose to forget. How telling. Unhonored and propitiated by worshipers of the machine, but waiting, watching, and waiting. His rhythm was present in the nursery bedroom, in the rank Elanthus of the April doyer, in the small of, in the smell of grapes on the autumn table, and the evening circle in the winter gaslight. So the sea is everywhere. It's present in some way. The river is within us, the sea is all about us, the sea is the land's edge also, the granite into which it reaches, the beaches where it tosses its hints of earlier and other creation. The starfish, the horseshoe crab, the whale's backbone, the pools where it offers to our curiosity the more delicate algae and the sea anemone. It tosses up our losses, the torn seine, the shattered lobster pot, the broken oar, and the gear of foreign dead men. The sea has many voices, many gods, and many voices. The salt is on the briar rose, the fog is in the fir trees. The sea howl 
and the sea elp are different voices, often together heard, the whine and the rigging, the menace and caress of wave that breaks on water, the distant rote in the granite teeth, and the wailing warning from the approaching headland are all sea voices, and the heaving groaner rounded homeward in the seagull, and under the oppression of the silent fog, the tolling bell measures time, not our time, rung by the unhurried groundswell, a time older than the time of chronometers, older than time counted by anxious, worried women lying awake, calculating the future, trying to unweave, unwind, unravel, and piece together the past and the future. Between midnight and dawn, when the past is all deception, the future, futureless. Before the morning watch, when time stops and time is never ending, and the groundswell that is and was from the beginning clangs the bell. It's amazing to me. Okay, let's start. Okay. Um, <clears throat> try to do a, um, I just want to touch on a couple of things um, before we look at our chapters today. The, 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 the trilogy is about the rise of Snoopsism. Um, by the way, I have to say this. I said this on Monday night, I, f I forgot here. I had an experience again, that <laughs> usually happens with me. I haven't done this trilogy in forever. It's just been a long, long time. Um, and I was reading it um, and came to that chapter on the Mrs. Haight with the donkeys and the insurance. It was, you know, it was one of the funniest chapters in the whole book. Um, I'm going to come to that. I don't want to go over that story, but there's a, there's a line by um, I.O. Snopes that absolutely blew me away. It seems like a nothing line, but when we get to it, I'm... Um, anyway, I read it, and a whole worldview um, came to me, and I shook my head because the insights I've had before, I think, had another one added to it, and altogether it just formed a much larger picture. I don't have any question that this book is one of the most prophetic books. I, I believe it goes with uh, Moby Dick, that Faulkner is laying bare... Um, something about the Southern culture, for sure, but I believe what he's showing us um, relates to everything that's going on in America, even the North. We've already seen in Moby Dick that Melville exposed the hypocrisies in a Christian culture, that a, a, a Christian culture had lost its way. Um, there's Every person he presents to us in Moby Dick um, is full of hypocrisies, all of them. Um, <clears throat> Mrs. Hussey, Peleg Bildad, um, Father Mapple, um, maybe most especially him. Um, all of them are, are, are failing in some ways to live up their Christian call. They're living in a world of respectability. They're all getting along with their lives. They're living comfortable. They make money, but there's something they're not dealing. What's at the heart of it, if we go back to Moby Dick for a second, remember is this, um, the central place that wounds have in our lives. And there's no way to see that without going back to the Iliad because that's where it all starts. Um, we all carry these wounds and 
there's there are theologies at work in the Protestant New England culture that deepen them. The, Calvin's notion of predestination, um, the damned, that somebody can be damned before he's even born. Ahab is, is so angry at, at, at a culture that has, in, that has made him internalize those things, that they've become a part of him. And his response is to want to strike back, to, to get back. And when we talked about it, you remember I said, I think this is true for all of us. We grew up with wounds in our families. We, um, and watching Ahab, in a, sense, in a sense, is watching something that's true for all of us. The reason he gets such quick control of that ship is because he's appealing to something universal. All those men have been wounded. They want to get back. And you remember that in the beginning, Ishmael said, I raise my voice as higher than theirs. He was one with their cause. But gradually he separates and if he's a Jonah figure, as I believe he is pretty clearly, and, and is, is helped to survive at the end, the question is, what does he do? He, like Jonah, he comes back to Nineveh, us, and the question is, do we hear him? That's what Melville does. And what we've got in Ishmael is something that cracks that, that New England Protestant world. Something that's wrong with it. It's a completely different way, completely different spirit in which to stand to nature. The openness, the gladness, the, the, the power of seeing the goodness in things, you know, what they mean. Every chapter is full of that. So <clears throat> Melville opened that respectable world and we have an Ishmael in answer to it. He doesn't come back like Father Mapple and beat everybody over the head, but he shows us this world. And it's metaphysical underpinnings because we go to that through Ahab because all of his concerns are metaphysical. You're all right with that, right? I mean, you, this is all, yeah? So what I'm going to claim here is that Faulkner's doing the same a century later. He's a century farther into modernity and he's showing us something far more modern <coughs> in a different way from Melville. And what he's showing us is what's happened to the modern mind when it loses touch with traditions. Flem Snope's whole way of doing things is to use his intellect to just get ahead on his own. There's nobody in the world that he relates to on a level of passion or love or concern. His only his single concern is to get ahead. He lives in abstractions in his mind and the dynamic in his soul is to impose his will to use whatever is there for his own benefit. And we're watching a world that is increasingly becoming that way because the Snopes are multiplying. They're, they're described as rats or mice or termites. Or, they're multiplying. And when it starts in the, in the Hamlet, as you know, everybody stands by and watches. Nobody's doing anything. I think about Roe Wade because it came up this year. And I just think, it's, you know, what is it, 50, 60 years since Roe Wade? How long did it take? for a, a, a movement to gather against it, to answer, and really interesting, if we look at Roe 8 as a feminist, largely a feminist, the effect of something of the modern feminist movement, it's interesting to see now that the, the real leaders of the reaction against that are women, largely women. And the feminist position is we're doing this for women, but they hate the women who are in the pro-life movement. I mean, they couldn't be more anti-female so there's, there's always something deeper than what appears on the surface. This seemed to have been for women. 
If it were, you'd think there'd be a compassion for women who don't have abortions. That's not the case. So you have an image of people living in their heads in an ideology, that that ideology is more important than our nature and whatever it asks of us. Is that clear? So in Flem Snopes, you know what, I, I mean, what I'm feeling about reading. If we don't learn to identify with every person in a book, particularly the bad ones, then we're not reading well. Flem Snopes is an image of something that's in every one of us because we've been raised in this culture to have my way, to assert my will, to use people for my advantage. And we watch it multiplying. In the hamlet, people stood by and watched. In the town, we're watching the people finally begin to take responsibility. And at the same time, we're, we're made aware of how complicit a community is while this is happening. Um, but one of the beauties of this novel is we're beginning, we experience a group of people, two men and two boys, begin to be aware of something and want to answer it, to defeat it, because it's evil. But it, you, you have to see that at this point, it's already infected um, a community. I thought Don's phrase um, last week was really good. I think inst institutionalized sin, or what did you, institutionalized sin, yeah. That it gets buried in a culture and we're not even aware of it, not sufficiently aware of it. So, so that's the that's the um, the central theme. But with the counter, say we can say the counter theme um, is the chivalric romance character tradition that um, is present in Gavin, because he's central to this. He's the only one. Well, I mean, the you know Tom Tom and Turl indirectly. Did. And it's really interesting. They didn't set out like educated people in their heads to do something. It happens as an accident and they start putting things together and they have to do something. Gavin's educated. He's well educated. He's really thoughtful. Um, even though you have to ask at some point how complicit he is. You can't read those chapters of Gavin without saying, Gavin, Gavin, Gavin. He's so in his head. Chapter 15 and 18, you know, 15 when he's scrupulously trying to figure out how he's going to meet with Linda without making it seem as if he's a courtly lover, you know, and, um, and pursuing her. And in 18, when he's, when he's trying to figure out attribute motives to, to Snopes and what he's doing, and he gets it all wrong. And, and chapter 18, or the following chapter, Ratliff goes, no, 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 no. Gavin's in his head. He, he completely misreads. And yet, He's the finest example of chivalric romance in the book. And I went through this last week. Remember, the chivalric romance, the, it, it came into existence in Christianity because what it did was um, carry the, the image of a warrior, a male warrior, a warrior forward that we inherited from the pagans, but added something to, to Christianity. And here's, here's one of the things we learned. The chivalric romance tradition had at its core a hidden pride. The, 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 there's too much of an ego in the, in the chivalric knight. Um, there's an element of self-interest that's buried. One of, the, one of the reasons it's important to look at Christ in this context is because there was nothing of egotism in Christ. He was God. So when he's quiet before Pilate, that 
absolute silence when he's being accused wrongfully is an image of the kind of absolute self-surrender we have to make to love the way he does. Is that clear? Very often when we do things for other people, I'm saying this broadly for all of us, there's an element of egotism. There's something of ourself in it, almost always. Very often when we help people, we're doing it for ourselves in some ways. Christ eliminated that. He took that out. So at, at the center of the, of the um, chivalric tradition is a flaw. Um, remember I showed you, that I, we talked about the Petrarchan tradition to, to, to write those poems in honor of um, Laura, the beloved. She was compared to a star. He always talks about his passion for in terms of tempests and floods and, and you can't read them without feeling this extraordinary emotion. And I gave you Shakespeare's poem. We read that, didn't we? The sun, where she's, my, she's got wires for hair and breasts like done and, you know. But he said, I, um, this beautiful one at the end. Don't look at you. Oops. Oh, I do. Here. Like, um, I love to hear her speak, yet well I know that music hath a far more pleasing sound. I grant I never saw a goddess go. My mistress, when she walks, treads on the ground, and yet by heaven I think my love as rare as any she belied with false compare. I'm saying, I think you'd all agree, his love is closer to Christ because he's loving a woman without idealizing her or making her something she's not. Christ came into the world to love us when we didn't deserve that love. The tendency of all of us, men and women, I'm going to say this for both of us, I think particularly men, but for both men and women, when we're young is to idealize another. We saw that in the siren episode in Dante, remember? He looks at her and he opens her voice and she starts singing. He then he's caught. The church calls that idolatry, that so often we project an ideal on another in order to be worthy of the love we give them. Father does this all the time, right? We make it this perfect thing when what we're doing is, as a matter of fact, doing it for our own pride because we think we deserve that. So there's this powerful tendency to idealize, particularly in our teenage years. I'm assuming we all know this. Um, so at the center of the chivalric notion is a, a flaw. And one of the harmful effects of it we saw, and I think it's particularly true of the South, because it had a strong sense of the honor code and the aristocracy. When a man puts a woman on a pedestal, he's not only doing it for his own vanity, he's going he's to come up against a hard wall somewhere, but he's enabling his wife, the beloved. We saw the most perfect example of that that I know in modern literature in Mrs. Compson. When you put a woman on that pedestal and, and, and you do everything for her, what does she ever do for herself? I mean, she can't do anything for herself. She's absolutely help, helpless. So the two alternatives either either remember um, here's the, the the image John Crow Ranson gave us in that essay I think called forms of behavior I can't remember that if men and women are left to themselves um, the sexual impulse is so powerful that they will become animalistic they'll become brutal with each other. They have to have a code because it's only when they have a code that a man 
can learn the restraint that's needed um, for the female. The female has a protection, but she's also asked to do something according to that code too. If the Shivari code gets set in a culture with all of its flaws, it's going to it's going to spoil women. I mean, they're going to be put on a pedestal, and the effects of that are going to be awful. Take the code away, and you've got animals, you know, sexually with each other. So one of the fundamental problems at the heart of, of the town, we're in a world of respectability. It's a mannered world. One of the qualities of the chivalric romance tradition was it involved adultery, almost uniformly. That's, a, that's an element of the courtly romance tradition because there was no place in marriage for passion. Everything was respectable, it had to be kept. So universally, adultery is an aspect of it. What goes on in the town? Exactly that. Um, Eula's married um, an inhuman person who has nothing of the erotic in him at all. It's, there's almost no sexual nature. He's just a mind, an intellect moving ahead with nothing, trying to get everything out of the way. She has this adulterous affair. Cat Gavin's the only one trying to help. He, he, he wants to save her. And after that blow up with um, to Spain, when he gets beaten, in the, you know, he goes off to war. And when he comes back, Linda's older, and he picks it up again. He's going to save her. So, running through this this story and the this um, the coming on of Snopesism is Gavin as a romantic hero. He's everything that Quentin wasn't. You know, at least Gavin tries to fight. Um, uh, to Spain. So we've got this tension between the rise of Snopes and his clan and the chivalric um, figure. And it seems to me one of the things that Faulkner's doing is critiquing that chivalric tradition and showing its failures. Because no matter how much we love Gavin, I do, I mean I just deeply admire him, <laughs> You can't watch him at some point without saying, Gavin. And that's what you, you know, you hear. Um, in fact, I've read you those two chapters. Remember chapter 9 and chapter 11? Ratliff goes, no, he, he missed it. He missed it again. Two chapters later, no, he missed it again. I couldn't, and I couldn't tell. Why can't he tell him? I mean, that's one of the mysteries. I, we'll get to that today. Gavin's, he's a romantic hero. He romanticized things terribly. In fact, even in that, eight, he talks about Flem in terms of pulling himself up by the book's boot snaps and having the humility to do, there's not a drop of humility in phlegm at all. Um, so Gavin's completely misreading everything. Um, and yet I think it's hard not to admire him. I mean, everything he does, he does in the interest of a love that he, um, that he takes very seriously. Um, I want to come to this idea of modernity in, in a minute. Um, um, I, I, just to, you know, to repeat what I said a few minutes ago, to me this book is one of the most important books of modernity because it's showing an impulse that began to make its way into the West in the 16th century when the scientific revolution took place and the Protestant revolution took place because it took mystery and miracles, the sacred, out of it. And the result of it was that shrunken image we saw in Flannery O'Connor and um, um, heart of the park. Remember when they went to the museum? But what, we've, what we're left with in modern man is this shrunken figure because everything has been rationally 
intellectually reduced. It's a reductive way of reading. Reduces us to those things we can grasp with our minds. And that, that quality has infected our religious communities. It's everywhere present. So in the town, we're really, it's a prophetic work. It's showing us something about our world today and what we're living in. I want to, um, I want to turn to the readings um, in a second. But, so, looking ahead, I think, you, I, I think I gave this away already. If I, if I did, I'm going to do it now. If you don't already know, you know that Eula's going to take her life. One of the arguments that I, that I tried to put together last week is, if you look at respectability, what you see is that it's fundamentally about a woman. Because it's the woman who bears life, who is, who is the principle of the continuity of life in our world. Take away manners, and she becomes a sexual object. If we don't have the protections in place, um, civilization is going to have a much harder time. It'll, in, in so many ways, it's going to be damaged. If you put her on a pedestal, the effects are going to be awful. We're living in a world in which women had a central place in a Catholic tradition, particularly with Mary, and the sacrament of marriage. In a Catholic tradition, the, the marriage is a, it's not a civil thing. It's a sacrament. It's a sacrament. It, it's an expression of a unity with Christ and the call to the cross. So if one of the purposes of respectability is the protection of the woman, what, what does it mean that Eula takes her life? That's the, I don't want to talk about that, but that's going to be the major question to tackle next week because then we're going to have to look at it squarely. But it's just a way of looking ahead that we've already seen the number of ways in which respectability becomes complicit in evil. Eula's going to be gone. That to me is a signature moment for modernity in, in terms of what literature has to show us. So um, those are some of the things we've been looking at. It seems to me there are challenges us for us. And in, interesting, what, where I started about 20 minutes ago. I read that chapter, the hate chapter, and that comment, and it's like a whole world crystallized. And anyway, what I, what I want to go, God, I, this is, I do need help. It may be too late. Um, I wanted to say thank you to you guys, because every time I go back to these things, they always get richer and richer, and, and I, I've seen a lot in this work before, but it had a greater depth again, which is so often the case for me when I go back to it. So I just wanted to thank you all for, for bringing me back here, because it stunned me for its revelations about us and our modern, exactly what the modern, exactly what the modern mind is. And stop and think about this. Um, as over against Snopes, are those four men. And you know, particularly from Chick, there's nothing he says that doesn't carry with it a we. When I say Jefferson, when I say we, I mean Jefferson. Because there's nothing they do that doesn't express a concern for others. So they are the antithesis of Snopes. What we're seeing is in them, this is really, this is sort of amazing. Um, remember in that I'm going to come to that because it's a telling chapter when they, when they caught Montgomery Snopes. Why was Montgomery Snopes fearless? That they couldn't do anything? Because he knew their concern for Christ, this Christian community would who's going to do that? And we know it from Gavin because Gavin's treatment of Hap 
Hampton, he did not, he tried to be as gentle with him, even though he knew he'd lose his job, because he didn't want to shame him. To Gavin, to his credit, there is this sense in that community of trying to be careful of another. It's Christian. You, you want to deal with evil, but if you ever get to a point where you're just exposing people because of their faults, it's a, you know, all in the name of being honest or truthful. I mean, there's, a, there's so many things that can go wrong with that. They're doing what they're doing because they carry a we, a tradition. They are formed by a tradition. What is Snopes trying to do? He wants to, he wants to become respectable by just imposing his will on something. He carries nothing of a tradition with him. Look at the modern world. How many people come into this world carrying traditions behind them, embodying them in their lives, speaking it, guarded with it? You all clear the problem here? There's a weight for them. You can't arbitrarily make a tradition. It carries its past forward. You're a part of it. It helps guide you. It gives you a strength. You also have to deal with its weaknesses. But that's fundamentally what's going on. Snopes has none of that. He wants to come into that, pay for it, barter it, barter with Varner. He's going to finagle it. So what we're watching is modern, deracinated, uprooted, no history behind him, no past he carried. He's going to be successful. That's a large part of the major problem in the West. So, and we're going to see the effects of it, you know, next week in the last couple of chapters. But. But, but that's part of the character of modernity that Faulkner is offering it. And I'm going to claim next week he's not Catholic, that in an amazingly ironic way it points towards Catholicism. Wait on that till next week. But. I'm sorry, so he's not Catholic? Hmm? He's not. Faulkner's not Catholic. Not he's not, yeah. you know, this is not a Catholic community. It's not an ecclesial world. Um, it's just our world as we know it. But indirectly, I think, wait on that. I just, it, it, it's one of the things that just hit me when, and when Suzanne and I were talking about it at the table a few days ago. Mm-hmm. So we're in the modern world. We're in our world. This is, and it's us. It's us. Um, something in us. Are we looking at it? Are we dealing? Are we bearing it? Are we bearing it? Are we doing what we should do to move past it? I mean, those are, those are catechetical questions, but this is our world, okay? Let me stop for a second because I want to go to the readings. Any thoughts or questions or comments or before we look at the chapters? Oh, that veneer got to come back. Let me let me respond because Sue described the the respectability as a veneer. Uh, I just want to be careful. If you look at 19th century British novels, Dickens and particularly Dickens, I think. It's impossible to look at the social world there without, I think, without using that word because it's a really appropriate word. The, the reason I wanted to qualify it is um, for Flam Snopes, it is a veneer because there's nothing real behind it. For a lot of the people, it, there's a veneer in the sense that they're not living their Christian calling, but I, I can't talk to that directly. I, I've got to wait until next week um, to, to go more directly to that. You know that when, if you've read ahead or you're finished, you know that um, after um, Eula kills herself, takes her life, the town's going to divide down. Some believe it was right, some wrong. And 
there, there is in the part of those people a sincere commitment to their beliefs and respectability. They're not hypocritical in their own minds. Faulkner is making us aware of failings, but for a lot of them, they take that very seriously. So I just want to be careful. There's, there is a veneer aspect to that respectability. But, um, and, and certainly that applies to Flem Snopes because there's nothing real underneath it at all. It's all an image. It's furniture. Like the, you know, it's like the furniture bought. It's just show, it's an image, it's appearances. For a lot of people that try to live good lives, Maggie and Charles, you know, tried to, they, it's a good marriage. Even, even, though, even though there seems to be lacking a passion in it until Gavin stirs everything up and then Chick is the fruit of that. I just think it's just more. Anyway, you know, a lot of the people are good people. They're just, and they're not, they're not living shallow lives. They're living a good life. Um, one of the questions, I don't want to answer tonight, but it's going to be the main, I would leave it when we're done, but let me get it out now. One of the questions that I want to ask next week, it's what we're coming to, is Faulkner lays bare this respectability. It's, um, it's been penetrated, infected by Snopes and evil. And the evil is all the more sinister because it can take umber, it can hide itself there. And we know that this town is complicit. They close blinds, they don't look, they don't talk about it. We're back in the sound of the funeral. Nobody talks, nobody confronts anybody. People are left to leave their li- to lead their lives. Gavin's the one who makes a mess of things, you know, by what he does. So what's Faulkner's position on respectability? It's full of hypocrisy, it's full of flaws. What would happen if you got rid of it? I, s- I hope everybody's seen the problem here that it's, it's, I think it's meant principally to protect a woman and life. She's the bearer of it. But at its center are these struggles between man and woman that, that we've been left with since the fall. We've been looking at that almost in every work we've looked at. Take respectability away and what will happen between the sexes? So where, where is Faulkner? Um, Fred said, dark work. For me, this is a really funny book. It's, on the, it's a comedy of manners looking back to the 19th century. Um, but in a sense, it goes so far beyond them because it's dealing with things the 19th century didn't look at. Faulkner's looking at a modern world that's going to hell. I mean, we're almost back in Dante's Inferno. It's a dark, dark work. And there's no happy ending. You know, we're left with Eula's death and the, and the Snopes' children, these wild animals coming into town and being set off. Um, I can't... Was it you that threw the book? Was it the Hamlet that you put down in anger? And, and if, you put down the, if you put down the Hamlet in anger, I can't see you doing anything different with the town because when you get to the end of the town, it's not as if things are much better. <clears throat> anyway, you see, with, I mean, they're... Where is Faulkner on this, and where are we? I don't want to answer that now, but that's where we're going next week when, to finish this off. But any questions or comments before we look at the chapters? Do you think Chick is learning more than Gavin? Chick? Yeah. Why do you, I mean, I the, even like you, you had put it that way. I think you've already answered the question. Um, you answer it. I mean, I think he is. Why? How? But I think it goes back to that chivalric romance that mm-hmm. Gavin is so seated in, right? Mm-hmm. And Chick's in a different world now. Mm-hmm. And he's been taught by Ratliff right. from 
right. such an early age yeah. right. to read and see. Right, right. Right? Yep. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to, it's interesting because the opening quotes that I want to go to are just before the section we're supposed to deal with today. And they have Chick as a principal figure because he's, I agree. You already had the answer the way you I mean, were. I thought I did, uh, but I just wanted to make sure I was. I think, I think so. How could he not? Because he's a different, he's, he's growing up with it, so it's a part of his life in a way that it wasn't quite true for Ratliff, or sorry, Gavin. And he's got Ratliff all the time going, he missed it, he missed it. No, 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 no. So Chick is learning to see things that Gavin doesn't. And they're becoming, a, they're becoming a part of his life. There's two other things that I want to, when we get to the reading, I'll show you. I, I think there's also something else that I found rather... Something else what? That I thought was rather amusing, but he's, he's a child. And he's hearing these conversations. And when Rattler says to Gavin, what, the, what, what was the conversation? And Gavin goes off and says, right, and right. says, no, 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 no. Right. this is what he says, yes. which, which it's like, okay, a child, you know, for a born childlike, maybe we see things better and hear things better because he actually was the one who was saying, no, no, no yeah, yes, that eventually yes. he did say that, but this all led right. up to it, right. which is important. Right. So I, I thought that amused yeah. me somewhat. Yeah. Here's a kid saying, yeah. I always, I always sort of, I don't know the word, it's a sort of sad musing or amusement. I mean, it's, people want to protect kids today. It's part of the American character, and I think it's just, <laughs> you know, and I love the way Ratliff and Gavin go at it because they're very careful in the words they choose. They yes. can't be explicit about certain things, so they try to talk around him. Right. And Chick will always go, what? What? You know, he'll, because he doesn't understand, and they don't always answer him. <coughs> But at the same time, they're trying to prepare him to deal with evil. So, and he's five. Yes. And, and Ratliff goes, it's time. <laughs> he, 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 you know, it's really funny. When you, when you get older, an adult, you say, I'm going to ply you with wine or drink or alcohol. You know, when you ply somebody to open them up. Ratliff's response, I'm going to ply you with ice cream. We <laughs> don't know much about Gavin's life as a child. But I got the impression that Chick was much more, he had much more of an inquiring mind. He wanted to be the fly on the wall. He always wanted to stay longer than um, his parents, his, the adults thought he should. That's Gowan he, at the table. Yeah, well, it's also Chick. Like yeah. it's all but to Gowan, too, you know, when, he, when Maggie says, Would you like to be excused now? He says, No. 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 <laughs> Just getting into it. Yeah. Okay, let's, let's look at the chapters. Just remember, go back to, um, go back to 161, just, you are, you've already been here, but just as a reminder. Um, dis, dis, both Ratliff and Gavin are like detect. This really is a good detective story if you re if you saw it that way. And, and Faulkner knows what he's doing that way too. Gavin and um, Ratliff want to know what Flem's up to, but when he takes the money out of the bank, they can't figure out. And um, and when Snopes came to the Montgomery Snopes uncovering the unmasking when they caught him, and 
Um, it's clear that Snopes wants Montgomery Snopes out of the when Flem wants Montgomery out of the way. It's got to intensify the the problem for Gavin and Ratliff. And Gavin begins to surmise again. He starts trying to come up with reasons. And on 161, um, <clears throat> page 161, Ratliff goes, because he missed it. He missed it completely. And you know he's going to say that again on 12 on page 184. Um, Ratliff has made it clear to Gavin that Flem seems to have changed. He, he, on the bottom of 184 it says, but this new thing he has done fun, remember, and I read that, it's like keeping warm in winter or cool in summer or peace or being free or contentment. You can't just count it and lock it up somewhere safe and forget about it till you feel like looking at it again. You got to work at it steady never to forget it. Now remember, tradition is the fruit of ages of things moving forward, growing organically. Flem has got to work but it's all in his will. He doesn't carry the past with him, but he wants to enter into everything he understands to, as, as respectability. And Ratliff is still not understanding it, and on page 186, or did I say Gavin, Gavin is not understanding it, and then Ratliff says, and he still missed it, even set, and this becomes one of the motifs that carry forward. We watch Ratliff trying to enter in more fully to respectability by correcting his language. So we'd see him mid-sentence constantly from this point on correcting himself. He even sat sitting right there in his office and actively watching Flem rid Jefferson of Montgomery Snoop, and I still couldn't tell him. And we've, we've got to go forward to find out why he couldn't tell him and try to make sense of that. But that's where we were. Um, just to quickly review, remember on 172, when he was, when Montgomery was being um, um, flip and brass because he knew he was safe. In the middle of the page he says, but because the good-fearing Christian holy citizen of Jefferson won't let him because they can't have it known that this is what their police do when they're supposed to be at work. Here we are. Let me just stop for a second. That's a, here's part of the problem. He knows they can't do anything because they're not going to, they're going to cover it up. Um, here's the problem. Um, the Christian call is to do things in charity. We've got to confront people, but the difficulty is exposing people entirely. And they're not going to do that. So here's one of the problems of respectability. People are not confronting people they should, and even when they do, and we don't see it much, it, it's, it's not doing what it should do. I mean, Gavin's response is to pull to Spain away and, you know, they go into the... So, this is the first explicit that I can remember seeing in which we see evil can begin, is umbrage, take umbrage, in a community. And at this point, we become aware that the problem is far more complex. Um, the danger is, this is just amazing, the danger is, if you don't say anything, you enable. Very often, our response to enabling in our world is to go the opposite extreme. I'm good, you're bad, I'm truthful, you're, you're in sin, and you've exposed somebody, and you're better than them, and which stays in this black-white situation. That's so much the quality of our modern world, and we're seeing it here.
how do we deal how do we deal with evil particularly in a in a culture in which respectability is so important um, turn back to 63 this is when um, Gavin wanted to send the corsages to to Eula he wanted to save her God, this is just so this is such an amazing book he wanted to save her um, and Despain is driving his roadster by and gunning it and making noises to insult him in the middle of 63 and Gowan said they all looked at Uncle Gavin and that he himself was ashamed not of Uncle Gavin of us there it is all of us of us now remember that's that's Chick describing Gowan as a boy um, he said it was like watching somebody's britches falling down while he's got to use both hands trying to hold up the roof. You are sorry? It's funny. Ashamed? You had to be there watching. So Gallen felt the shame, and I think Chick does. That, so we're watching a child wounded by what a man has to do to protect this woman that he cares for. Hmm. But isn't the shame different? Gavin is shamed by disdain. Um, and Chick's shame is for his family. For and us. Him yeah. And everybody who are watching Gavin. Yeah, that's why I, I mean that line before was um, not of Uncle Gavin, of us, the rest of them. It's just, remember, he's, it's, there's a sense of a we, so it's a very, it, and it couldn't be farther away from phlegm. I mean, the, the tension that we're seeing here, the dynamic. Turn to um, sev, 79. This is when um, Ratliff, sorry, Gavin, fights to Spain and gets beaten up at the bottom of the page. Um, when I was older, I knew that too, that Uncle Gavin wasn't trying anymore to destroy or even hurt Mr. Despain, because he already found, remember, when Despain went over in the, the rake, the response of Maggie was to bring him in. Yeah. So no matter how much a person is doing something bad, there is in this code of manners, you still treat that person courteously. Um, Mr. Despain, because he had already found out that by that time, that he couldn't, because now Uncle Gavin was himself again. What he was doing was simply defending forever with his blood the principle that chastity and virtue in women shall be defended, whether they exist or not. He's holding out for a love that in some ways is Christ-like, even when it's not there. But we see the danger for him because it's, in so many ways he just, it's an ideal. Um, it, it isn't fully realized in him. Um, um, I don't want to go through this. Let me just quickly cover some of this. In chapter 12, after he returns from the war, Linda is older. He starts to look out for her. Charles is always making fun of him, forming, his mo forming her mind. And he's aware that there's in some way in which Gavin again is the courtly lover. He fights with that. I mean, this is a young girl, and he's a, old enough to be her father. But um, but it's hard 
it's hard not to feel that there's always a little bit of a romantic interest, even if it's paternal. Um, Gavin comes into her, um, Matt Levitt comes into his office, beats him up, you remember, and I think, I mean, this goes um, to your question about Chick. Remember, Matt Levitt comes in, this is, um, um, 199. I think it's one of the most important episodes in Chick's life. Matt Levitt comes in, locks the door, keeps Linda out. She's trying, she's trying to break in. Uh, she knows what's going to happen. He's a former Olympian boxing champion. And he's described as just pulling his hand back just a little bit. It was that strong. And bloodies Gavin. Chick is there in the office. What does he do? Bottom of 199. Uncle Gavin's lips and nose, but just instead wiping the blood onto them, two or three blows before I could seem to move and grab up grandfather's heavy walking stick, where it was still stayed in the umbrella stand behind the door, and raise it to swing at the back of Matt's head as hard as I could. This to me is extraordinary. We've never seen anybody do this except Gavin, and Gavin does, doesn't know he's going to get beaten up by Spain. This is a little kid. So he's not just thinking, he acted. He picked up a thing to defend his uncle. So courage is becoming a part. So there's this sense that these young kids grow up with these wounds watching what's going on, what happens, the sense of complicity with everybody. He, he tries to do something. Interesting, 200, um, Gavin says, you chick, stop, hold. He gives him away, Matt turns and puts the kid down. Gavin's trying to save the kid, kids trying to save him. So there's something wonderful growing in this small group of people who are willing to stand up to answer these things. When Linda comes in, um, um, on page 202, um, she throws herself on him. He tries to calm her. Um, Mr. Gavin, Mr. Gavin, oh, Mr. Gavin, Linda, I said, can you hear me? She didn't answer, just clutching me. <laughs> Do you want to marry me, I said. <laughs> God, and you know Maggie, Maggie wants him to marry her, and Eula will say shortly that she, she, she sees the answer. I hope everybody's seen here that there is this deeply idealistic side to people, like that's going to answer it. And, and, and all in the name of rescuing. Um, do you want to marry me? <laughs> just, that to me is one of the funniest lines because even though we know it's sort of there, it just comes out of nowhere. Um, yes, she said, yes, all right, all right. Um, we're going over two or three. Listen to me, I said, do you want to get married? Yes, they don't need any. It's not a very flattering. It's his rationalizing the marriage. So he's willing to do it because at least he'll have conversation. Or, I mean, it just shows you that this is not the answer. Um, Gavin is giving reasons to justify, to make it okay if he does. But she answers, you mean I don't have to, she said? Of course not, I said. Never if you like. I don't want to marry anybody, she said. She cried. Not anybody, she said. You're all I have, all I can trust. I love you, I love you. So at this point, the the... We're, we're approaching a crisis. What happened with Linda 
um, is being carried forward and it's reaching a peak, peak right now because Linda's come into it and what's going to happen to her. Um, Eula's father sold her out. The result of that was this adultery with Despain. Linda is aware of this. She's going to go forward. Can Gavin save her? I mean, things are complicating terribly at this point. So, um, I want to just um, mention a couple of things, and then I want to get towards the end if I can. Um, Gavin wants to give Linda um, a graduation gift and he chooses traveling luggage because his answer to the problem is to get her out of town. And Maggie says it's not a good idea. She goes, she t the women, remember what was, I, did I say this, did I remind you guys in Go Down Moses when, when Kaz and, and Uncle Buddy, Uncle Buck go to Herbert's to get um, um, Tommy's Turrell? And they go to sleep for the new nap, and, and um, Cass is in the backyard when everybody's asleep, and he happens to meet with Tommy's Turrell then, and he doesn't know it's up, in, and Tommy's Turrell says, if he wants to get something done, let the women do it. Mm -hmm. Do you remember? Mm -hmm. And what we learned then is this is all a setup. The Safanzova has set this whole thing up in, in motion to get, to get Herbert to marry her. So, and it, I just think it's, it, there's so much truth. And remember, Ratliff's going to say, when, when, when Gavin learns that he has not been listening, that the problem with him is that he's never listening, he's always talking. Ratliff said, he describes himself as going out on these 500 roads, and always there's a gathering of women. So he gets, he gets all of his wisdom from listening to women. Um, um, Ratliff or Gavin wants to send this luggage. Maggie takes control of it and gets the luggage and she signs everybody's name to it. So it, it gets him off the hook. Um, and shortly afterwards, because um, he, he thinks the reason that um, Linda won't go away is because her mother won't let her, if you remember. And he starts speculating about this, and, and it's, it's at another point where Ratliff says, no, he didn't get it. He didn't get it at all. He's got it all wrong. He knows that it's the, the father. By the way, I want to say something here, because I don't want to miss this. I, I'm likely to forget it. Are you aware of how much is assumed in the dialogue between these men? We, we, we're shown the two of them engaging a lot of times, but very often, particularly with Ratliff, we see him responding as if he after chapter 15 and after 18, there's no way he could have entered Gavin's head to know that stuff. It's almost like they're reading their minds, that, you know, particularly Ratliff, as you go forward, they talk and we see them talking, and Ratliff will say, no, you, it's not the reason. But very often you get a chapter and you realize there's a gap there. How did, how did Ratliff know? Because what we had for a whole chapter was something in, Gav in Gavin's head. So, we're assuming that something else was said or given away that helps Ratliff come to these conclusions. In one sense, you either have to say he's got telepathy or he's a really good reader of character and the things that Gavin does say are very telling for him. Um, or he learns 
through his listening to other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he says, you know, maybe I haven't heard it directly, but I impute it from everything else that's going on around yeah. me. Probably both. I mean, a combination of all those. There's a... Um, he goes to Linda to, con to convince her to let... I'm sorry, he goes to, goes to Eula to convince her to let Linda go. And it's then when he walks in and he sees the furniture that he's shocked because he said, this isn't you. And then he learns that it's all phlegm and phlegm's the one that's... And it's at that point, immediately afterwards when he, re when he meets Ratliff that, and he says, how did you know? And then that's when Ratliff says, because I listen <laughs> and you don't. And um, it's going to happen. It's just amazing because the next... In the, in the next two chapters, we're going to reach a point where Ratliff wants to give him an answer to something, and Gavin goes, no, I've got to go, and he runs off. And, and we're just aware. He, he should have stayed for a moment and listened, but he didn't. Um, 239. 237. Um, Gavin believes that he that Linda trusts him enough so that if he went to her and told her that Flem was not her father, that she would believe him. Eula says she won't. And Ratliff, I mean, Gavin's not convinced. <laughs> but anyway, on in page 227, Eula says she won't. Um, in the very middle of 237, I don't believe you, I said, cried or thought I did, but only thought it, it's just lived so much, until I said, so there's nothing I can do. Yes, she said, marry her. Um, at the bottom of the page, they say goodbye, and then we pick up with Ratliff and Gavin again. And Ratliff again, still in the client's chair where I just left him. So he's gone back to his. I tried to tell you. He said, "Now see, it's how does he know? I mean, we either either there are gaps here we have to fill, or or a little something said, whatever. It's not, but we do know that they talk. Um, but the way it's structured, it seems to me we're encouraged to see that Ratliff understands a lot about Gavin." Um, just by knowing who he is, um, the, the way Faulkner would, the way he gets in his head. Um, he tries to tell him that he, he couldn't tell him, and then on, over on page 239, um, this is one of the first times that Gavin has what we call that Socratic Alenctus moment, where you begin to doubt yourself, which is a sign of health. You question what you're doing. And he, he describes himself the way Linda did, that he doesn't understand women, that he, you know, he doesn't do this, he doesn't do this, and bottom of 239. He's describing himself and something too romantic in him. Because um, I don't know anything about women because things like love and morality and jumping out at any chance you can find that will keep you from being a Snopes are just a poet's romantic dream and women aren't interested in, you know, he goes on. Well, he said, I might, I might not just put it just exactly that way, because I don't know anything about women, I said. So would you mind telling me how the hell you learn? Maybe by listening, he said, which we all knew since, and then he describes it, go down. Um, his, his car parked along these old roads. In the old days, attached to the back of a horse-drawn 
buckboard and since then to the rear of a converted automobile hitched on a park hitched or parked beside the gate to a thousand yards on a hundred backcountry roads while surrounded by a group of four or five or six ladies come in sunbonnets or straw hats from anywhere up to a mile along the road Ratliff himself with his smooth brown bland inscrutable face and his neat faded tieless blue shirt sitting in a kitchen chair in that shady yard or that gallery listening Oh yes, we all knew that. So I didn't listen to the right ones, I said, or the wrong ones neither, he said. You never listened to nobody because by that time you were already talking again. <laughs> um, I want to look at just two things quickly and tie this. Go to um, 267. You remember the hate story. Her husband had this arrangement with I.O. to take these mules and tie them up. And one time he tied, got tangled up in the lines, I guess, and he got run over by the train. And, and his wife collected the insurance, and I.O. feels cheated, and he wants to collect his money. Flynn goes to get Snopes, I mean, Gav, Gavin as a witness. and. They go out there and Snope buys Io out, Flem buys Io He gives him money for the mules on the condition that he never come back. He haggles with um, Mrs. Haight for a few minutes. It's just a wonderfully funny scene. And Flem gives Io the money for all of the mules that he bought. One of them was not present. And he said, give me the money for that one. And Flem being Flem said, absolutely not. I mean, this is really, this is so good. Flem said, absolutely not until you produce the mule. He had given the $10 back to uh, Mrs. Haight. Um, and then he goes after the mule and Gavin and, or um, um, Flem leaves. He goes to get the mule and he comes back and he says to Haight, I want my $10. And since they agreed that the transaction never took place as a way of covering up, her answer is, what $10? <laughs> She's so good. And he persists because he feels cheated. And then he'll quarrel with her, and then he'll, he'll go off defeated, defeated by this old woman. And when he leaves, Hep turns to Mrs. Hayton and says, what happened to the mule? This is the mule that I went to get. She says, I shot him. <laughs> God bless her soul. <laughs> It's Tom Tom and Turl and Mrs. Haight who are the only ones who can get it. the educated, smart people no. are I mean Faulkner knows what he's doing. He they're absolutely useless um, in, in what's going on here. Here, I want to look at this passage. When Io is outraged, indignant, because he hasn't gotten justice, he says on page two sixty seven, of course most of that air eighty five hundred was Lonzo, which I never begrudged you, can't ne'er a man living say I did, even if it did seem a little strange that you should get it all, even my 60 standard price head for them five mules, when he wasn't working for you and you never knowed where he was, let alone even own the mules, that all you'd done to get half of that money was just to be married to him. And now after all them years of not actively begrudging you it, you taking that last mule I had, not didn't just best beat me out of another $140, but out of an entire another hundred and fifty. You got your mule back and you ain't satisfied yet. Oh, headset, what do you want? Justice, I always said, that's all I want. Let me stop. You remember, by the way, what defines Dante's hell? Justice. That's what people got. 
I mean, that's what people wanted, that's what they got. Purgatory was justice with a mercy added to it. Because if we're left with justice, we're all condemned. I mean, that's what Christianity gave us. What he wants is justice, that's all, which to me is really ironic. Because look here, he believes that. I mean, that's in his blood. He's, he's been cheated, and he know, we all know that experience. When we get angry, when we've been cheated out of something, we weren't given justice. I want, I want to be treated fairly. Or just, the line I want to look at is this, that all you've done to get half of that money was just to be married to him. Now stop. What does that say about I.O.'s view of marriage, and is there any way in which that's modern? What does it say? That line blew me away this time in a way that it never did before. It just stunned me. What does it say? It's a financial arrangement. Hmm? It's a financial arrangement. Yeah. Well, it completely denigrates marriage. Mm-hmm. There's no nothing in it. It's just luck of the draw. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Does everybody see that? No love, no. Yeah, in the Catholic tradition, it's a sacrament. You're united to Christ on, a, on the suffering. We're called in to suffer to deal with each other's sin. I've said this before that sadly, so, so much of what touches our marriages today are convenience. When things don't go our way, trouble. Um, but it, it just seemed to me his, his response was so telling. All you did was just to be, that is, that is, you didn't earn it. What is, the, what is the ideology of the modern American psyche? You pull yourself up by your bootstrap and you earn your life. There, we're asked, I mean, I, we've got to go back to the classics in Aristotle to get a hold of this, but um, we are asked to be responsible for ourselves. Yes, that's true. But sometimes we can take too much pride in saying, I lifted myself up by my bootstraps and I did it my way and you know, and you, um, there is this tendency in the American people to believe that all you have to do is keep asserting your will and move forward, but we're seeing that in phlegm and I.O. There's no sense of a we, there's no sense of a burden. We're quick to criticize people because we're not getting what we do. It's like Ahab. Um, we don't carry our burdens with each other the way the church asks. There, I.O. has no sense of that at all, at all. I mean, I, I don't think he's lying. This is a man who's really outraged. He's been cheated. I don't think he's lying. This is not a veneer. He's in his head in an abstraction, and he's partly right. At that level, he's right. You didn't do anything to earn this. Because everything he does, he's, he feels like he's got to do things, um, just like Phlegm. Um, there's no scruples. I mean, kills mules and collects an honest, you know, dishonest. But there's something in him that holds on to some sense of justice. At least he will use that with hate. Um, but, but he just gives away a whole modern way of looking at marriage. It does denigrate it, it demeans it. There's, there's nothing to it. She didn't earn it, why should she get the money? Um, in the Catholic tradition, we're supposed to become one. If it happens to your husband, it happens to you. Sadly, too often when things happen, the, the, the way the legal courts deal with it is in terms of money. You know, you lose somebody, you go to court, and you get a million dollars, and that's going to console you. It's, gonna, it's not going to replace a person. We're back in Shakespeare and Dante. We're back in the Iliad. 
we tend to value the human person by booty, possessions, money. Has anything changed since the Iliad? So, what we're watching is modern, deracitated man taking over, multiplying, it's, and it's undermining a culture. Set off against that is Gavin and Ratliff and Gowan and Chick, who know that there's something more, and it's embodied in a tradition. What happens when you begin to devalue that tradition, take it away, so that you're left deracinated, uprooted in a vacuum. That's our modern condition. Um, the Christian, we call this a post-Christian, post-modern, post-Christian world. Take those traditions away and what do you have in their place? So Faulkner's giving us a story, in a sense, about ourselves, a southern community, it could be northern, it's Melville or, Melville or Faulkner. He's showing us a story of something that's going on right before us, involving us, um, a habit of mind, a way of looking that's deracinated, abstract, um, that doesn't carry the weight of a tradition. Um, and like Moby Dick, there are no sacraments around, none. People are left with a code. And what we're seeing here is that by the very nature of that code, it becomes complicit in the evil that, that's tearing them apart, that's taking away their culture, their life. So it's a cultural problem. It is deeply a cultural problem. It's not just individuals. It, it has to do very much, we're back in Plato's cave. You know, this is the culture, this is what we've assimilated, this is what we're living. What are we doing about it? What are you, how are we answering it? Those are catechetical questions, but... Um, in page two, I'm not gonna look at it because I'm gonna stop right now. In page 270, 71, um, After the, the Mrs. Hate episode, Gavin has to go away and Chick and Ratliff are left with themselves for a moment. And it's at that point that, um, actually I should read that, that Ratliff tells Gavin, or I mean Chick, um, that he didn't get it. This is page 269, 270, 71, but 269 there. Um, he's telling Chick that Ratliff didn't get it and Chick wants to know what he didn't get. He doesn't understand. Dan, what's going on? Um, and he explains it to him on 269. Um, those pictures, and even when it was staring him in the face out yonder at Miss Hate's chimbley, chim, chimbley Saturday night when Flem give, gave her that mortgage and paid I.O. for the mules, he still missed it, and I can't tell him. Can't tell him what, I said because he wouldn't believe me. This here's the kind of thing you, a man has got to know his, himself. He's got to learn it out of his own heart, dread and skier, because what somebody else just tells you, you just half believe unless it was something you already wanted to hear. Boy, how, how, this is what Socrates came to answer. This is, this is what's at the issue of every Socratic dialogue. In our pride, we don't want, we, we're not open, we don't want to hear, we think we've got the right answer. If somebody agrees with us, we think, oh, that person's really wise. Somebody disagrees, we close down. Um, unless it was something you already wanted to hear. And in that case, you don't even listen to it because you, you had done already agreed, and so all it does is make you think, what a sensible fellow it was that told you. 
But something you don't want to hear is something you've done already made up your mind against whether you know, know, knew it or not, he goes on. Um, Ratliff goes on, he says um, that Ratliff will never, Gavin will never believe it deeply enough to mean something until he's frightened. That's why I couldn't tell him. I, I, wanna, I don't want to take this, you, if you want to take a minute now, but it, I, it, I don't, we're getting close to time, but to talk about the wisdom of that for a second is that, do we believe it or, but anyway, he goes on in 270 um, saying that Flem is out for something else and he's tried to tell Gavin, but Gavin doesn't hear. He was at the point of telling him that once when he ran off and he wouldn't even listen. What I said, what has he got to have? Respectability, Ratliff said. Respectability, that's right. And then he, he repeats that passage that I said earlier, when you get comfortable and warm and you have to work for something. Um, in page, let's see, in 17, we've got Gavin going on about Flem's motives. He even goes so far as to, to impute humility to him. But, I mean, it's so practical, and in, in some ways, it, it sounds like a man trying to be fair to another man. So it gives a kind of decency to Phlegm. Set this against Ratliff's vision of Phlegm in the Hamlet. Remember, he saw him taking over hell, usurping Mephistopheles or the prince's place. So that's a pretty clear indication of just what evil Ratliff sees in Phlegm. Gavin doesn't, and he, if you read 17 again, you, you know you're in his head. He's attributing all these motives and intentions, and in so many ways they couldn't be, they just could not miss Phlegm more than he does. It's like he doesn't, he, here, chivalric romance, the, the fam, one of the families, he does not take responsibility for evil. As a noble man, he, he wants to fight to Spain, he wants to save Eula, he wants to save Linda, but he does not, this, the chivalric romance, he does not deal with evil. It's beyond the range of what he's doing. So having gone through this long meditation and trying to figure out the reasons for Flem doing what he does, the chapter comes to an end and 18 begins, no, 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 he's wrong, he's a lawyer. And to a lawyer, if it ain't complicated, it don't matter whether words or not, because if it ain't complicated up enough, it ain't right. Um, he sees him as an educated man and what educated men will tend to. People don't, de wait, here, let me put it differently. We, we, I think, I hope we're together on this. We believe as, as Catholics or Christians that Satan's at the center of this. Satan was the brightest angel, the most gifted. He, angels are intellectual, that's their nature. They don't have bodies, they don't need, we need bodies, we're corporeal creatures. We can't know something that doesn't come through our senses. The modern mind, by the way, is, is angelic, I think in a crippled way, because it tries to surpass our bodies to know, to grasp immediately the way angels do. Anything that does away with the body is, is gonna twist our knowledge of things. Um, Satan was the brightest figure. If you read Paradise Lost, when you watch Satan tempt Eve, you, you just realize how, how overmatched she is intellectually. When man begins to think he's clever enough to deal with Satan, all I can say is, good luck. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gavin's in his head, and Ratliff is saying, 
Now, here's the one of the, how did he know? I mean, we just had a whole chapter of Gavin's meditation, and the response is, to, is on the part of Ratliff is no, 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 no. Well, he couldn't have gotten into his head the way we, we have. But we understand that he knows everything about what Ratliff is doing right now is somehow missing something. So, um, where do I want to stop with this? Gavin's in his head, he's missing. Chick is being taught something that Ratliff sees and Gavin doesn't. Gavin's trying to look out for Linda and has missed a lot. Um, right now, the novel is moving towards its climax because Ratliff has just said, Flem is going to do something, he's got to do something now because Linda's getting of an age. If she runs off to marry, <coughs> you'll have no reason for staying with Flem if she leaves. Flem loses control of the inheritance that Varner gave Eula, and he'll lose the voting sock. He won't be able to get rid of Despain. So he's got to do something right away. We know that Flem goes out to Varner's, and um, the crisis happens then. So we're on the verge of a crisis. Um, let me just try to put this together. Eula's of age. Ratliff is misreading. He, Linda, sorry. Linda's, Linda's of age. Ratliff, Gavin is misreading her everywhere. Ratliff sees a lot that Gavin doesn't. We also know from Ratliff that, um, that Flem's going to act, that something's got to happen, and it does. Um, he's going to go out. I don't want to give it away, but he goes out to meet with the Varners. He talks with Mrs. Varner. That night, Will will come into town, and radically things are going to... I mean, it, it's forcing an issue, and things are going to blow the, one of the byproducts of that action there is Eula taking her life. So this extraordinary creature that, that you know, it's so much a part of the, um, the Hamlet, the sense of the place of the feminine that's being lost in the world, we saw a parody of recovering it in what Ike did with a cow. But if you look at all the marriages in the Hamlet, it doesn't speak very well for marriages. Marriages are wounded badly there. The, the only good one is between Ike and the cow, and we know that that's a parody. It's, it, it's, it's a way of showing what's been lost and what's wrong, in one sense, from a chivalric tradition. Lind, Eula's going to take her life. So one of the major questions I have, pretty serious, why did she kill herself? What brought that about? Why did, because there were other options. Why did she do that? And what does it tell us about respectability? If the protection of the woman is one of the fundamental elements of re the respectable world that a civilization depends on taking care of a woman because she's the bearer of life, what happens when you take it away? What does is, what is the fact that Lynn Eula took her life tell us about the respectable world? What is Faulkner showing us about? And all, while all of this is going, we all know that Jefferson has been complicit in all of it from the beginning. Where was this Christian world? So that's where we are. It's, a, it's, it's heading towards a really dark place. What is he showing us about ourselves in the modern world, the place of woman, the difficulties we, play, we face as moderns? And let me stop there. I think, I think any, any questions or observations or... You all know where we're going. 
and it's, it's not going to get light from here. <laughs> and by the way, just to look at, in case you, the, the, the mansion answers it. Okay. Just, so, it, it answers it. <laughs> it answers it. <laughs> Francis, bless your soul. You are halfway to sainthood being married to that guy. <laughs> there are no questions here? Well, I just think it may be premature. Okay. I know. I know he's always three steps ahead. Why? I just think that I learned something about this respectability thing. Say it again. I think I just 